Hi everyone, welcome to the Deal Makers I Left podcast series. We are happy to bring these insightful conversations with our guests where we deep dive into a fascinating world at the intersection of law, finance and technology. Our guests bring a wealth of knowledge and experience on the most pressing issues facing the legal and financial sectors today. Whether you're a lawyer, a finance enthusiast or simply curious about the ever-evolving landscape of law and finance, this podcast is meant for you. Today, we discuss ESG and its impact on project finance. In this episode, we have with us Dr. Daniel Raishat Fisindis, who is a senior counsel at Chatham & Partners, and Andreas Ruthemeyer, who is a counsel at Clifford Chance. This episode is being led by Jean and Irado with assistance from Ruslana. Welcome to the Dealmakers ILF podcast. Bonjour everyone. Welcome, Daniel and Andreas. To begin this podcast, Daniel, could you give us a brief introduction to this topic of ESG? Thank you, and thanks for, for having us here. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and bracket, Corporate Bracket Closed Governance. And the idea behind this is that there, there may be activities that are legal, but which are not desirable for certain investors. And so what the ESG movement is about is to make sure that investors have an understanding what their money is invested in. And um, if it's not invested the right way, maybe there are even, even sanctions attached to it. But the important thing is really, this is not targeting things where we talk about compliance with laws, but it is really compliance with essentially higher standards. And the big idea behind it is that as investors prefer ESG compliance investments, eventually bad habits will be crowded out of the market, so to say. Whether that will really happen one day is a different question, but, but that's the basic idea. And Andreas, could you please give us a brief overview of the regulations that govern ESG in the EU? I'm very happy to, and also thank you for having us. Uh, in the end, there's a lot of policy activity at the moment in the European Union when it comes to regulating ESG activities. I would just like to highlight three of them, which in my point of view, the most important at the moment. One is EU taxonomy regulation, which actually provides for a framework of a class system of those activities, which um, Daniel just mentioned, that you actually are aware of those activities and can classify them. And then uh, coming from that, I think the other really important topic at the moment is disclosure. Uh, disclosure for as requirements for financial market participants, so the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, but also on, on the corporates who then have to um, provide disclosure on their activities which relate to ESG which is based in the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. As a practitioner, how do you go about when financing a project in compliance with ESG regulations? When it comes to financings of projects uh, and considering the ESG regulations, they are always one of the pivotal bits for structuring a transaction. The significance of it depends, of course, of the project at hand, which is subject of the financing. So whether there is a more direct impact on environmental and social circumstances or whether it's more indirect, whether it's, for example, corporate financing or the project financing of a pipeline or a power plant. And that kind of really drives also the effects the ESG regulations have on the documentation and on the structuring elements. So the more significant and the more direct the impact is, for example, building the pipeline or financing the construction of the power plant, the more 
inclusion and relevant and more detailed the ESG uh, due diligence usually also is. While on the corporate side, this already works on a more, let's say, higher um, on a more higher level. Does it mean ESG is a new concept? Well, from my perspective, I mean, ESG is almost something that has been invented in project finance. Maybe like a just chosen what little bubble I'm living. But but there's there's some truth to it. And then the classical example is how the so-called equator principles came about. The equator principles are essentially a set of requirements for environmental, social, and governance aspects of projects, which certain banks committed to adhere to for projects in jurisdictions that didn't have very strong regulatory frameworks. So it was really like going back to what I explained before, it's not about the law, it's really about going beyond what the law requires. And, And how did this come about? came about after a project in China, the Three Gorges Dam, which was financed by an international consortium in, I think, the 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. The huge dam project, which had huge impact on the on the local population, on the environment and all of that. And what then, so at least that's the urban myth, what that happened is that one of the banks was a German bank that doesn't exist anymore, which was pretty present in project finance at the time. It was West LB, and they are based in Düsseldorf. And what happened is that there was like a protest march in Düsseldorf in front of the West LB headquarters. And the board members were looking out of the window and they didn't understand what was going on. They said, I mean, we are doing something that's entirely legal over there. We're, we're not doing anything bad. Where's the problem? And then they understood that just playing by the rules that were at the time set and enforced in China, they would not sufficiently protect their reputation as a German public bank uh, vis-a-vis their constituency in Germany. And it's a state government-owned bank, so people who protest in the streets are relevant. So that shows that like how this came about for project finance, maybe there has been like similar things in other areas, but it then really has at the start been something that was kind of considered niche and only for public sector banks. And bit by bit, other project finance lenders signed up to it. And I think now it's like 97 banks, even banks from emerging markets that previously would say, oh, we really don't want to sign up to funny stuff that you have to do in order to keep your constituencies in Western Europe happy. So I think that there has been a long history for that. The equator principles are one example, but there are also other examples. I think the like Andreas just mentioned when we were preparing here, the OECD consensus on export finance, which is also like a soft law instrument for ESG requirements. So we do have quite a quite a history in that respect in, in project finance, and now it will be interesting to see whether and to what extent the new regulations will have a practical impact that goes beyond what we already have as as informal standards. We believe the EU has been a step ahead with ESG-related responses. Do you see this as a progressive step? Um, Certainly. Um, I think also coming back from what what Daniel just mentioned, from a a project finance community, ESG was always a relevant factor, particularly also looking at export credit agencies 
They don't look only at the commercials, but the ESG impact is just a very important element which needs to be settled before funds can be released in order to, uh, to actually finance projects. The uh, current activities we can see in the European Union are, my point of view, very welcoming. It's also there are initiatives which are shaping the market, also can have a very global effect uh, from a policy perspective. And it basically takes this idea of ESG for a specific project into a wide, broader concept of actually looking at economic activities as such and acknowledging also what Daniel said, that it is of relevance what consequences economic activities have on the environmental and the social uh, element, considering the stakeholders involved. And taking this idea and acknowledging the relevance of it, I think is something which is, yeah, as I said, very welcoming. And I mean, if I might just like jump in here, I think the difference is if you look at pure project finance, it's actually not so difficult to see what's going on. Otherwise, the protesters wouldn't have made it to the uh, to the West LB headquarters at the time. But I think if you move more into corporate lending or into the bond market, it becomes way more difficult to really find out where the money goes. And I think a lot about the new regulations now is to make sure that not only in these like relatively simple structures in the terms of like what's the purpose of the money, but also in yeah, in broader finance activities, this kind of transparency is is ensured. And I think that that's really where the EU is trying to be a step ahead. And it has a real effect, I think, adding to what Daniel said on on companies, because in the end it forces the participants to actually consider what is the impact of my activity. It forces people to to collect data on things they have not really considered collecting data before. Well, it's pretty simple, I think, in the effect of if you have a project financing of a simple project, like, let's say a power plan again, where you have a certain input and a certain output, which you can measure very easily, having a large corporation that getting that data and actually being aware of what's happening is very complex and very difficult. In your day-to-day -day practice, how do ESG factors impact project financing decisions for an investor? And how does a lawyer or a lender evaluate the risks? I think in the um, when it comes to the impact of the ESG factors on finance and transactions as a whole, it's it's addressing a demand. It's addressing a demand from investors who would like to know what actually happens with their money or they would like to know the effects on it. It's stakeholder expectation. Your employees would like to know what's actually happening. Um, the communities you're in, they expect business to operate in a way which is socially and environmentally responsible. And then, of course, this ties into financial performance. In the end, sustainable activities are just not something which can be seen in a kind of ring fence scenario, but they actually have an effect on financial performance. And then looking forward, um, also at the obligations which will apply to financial institutions, which I didn't have to disclose on how they how they comply with ESG obligations. In the end, that is something that they need information from their own customers. So there's an entire, let's say, circle which, which ties together there and which makes ESG a very relevant component where one cannot say one doesn't participate. Thank you for your answers. Now I will let Erato continue. Andreas, could you speak about your own journey when it comes to LMA agreements and how ESG has been accounted for? 
especially when we are having standard documentation for sustainability linked products. Um, very happy to like from our own experience, uh, Daniel and I back in the day, we experienced on transaction what it actually meant to have a green financing. Uh, we both advised on one of the initial green Schulzhandal in, in the German market, where one can say, I think that there was no strong expectation. What does it actually mean? What is a green financing? Of course, there was a connection to it. There was a green project. It was about renewable en energy in, in the end. So it was pretty clear, but there was no expectations or no market standards or no ideas of market standards as we have now starting off with the green bond principles and the bond market, which then translated into the green loan principles or now the sustainability linked loan principles, which you mentioned. Now, what one can see in the documentation, there are certain expectations, there are certain benchmarks, which at, at the beginning when we started advising on it, we're just not there. There was an idea, but now I think it becomes more formalized, which of course has certain benefits and creates yeah, expectations of market participants, what you would like to see in order to say an investment or financing is, let's say, green or ESG compliant. Well, maybe, maybe to give a bit more flavor to this even. So the interesting, the interesting thing about this project that Andreas was just referring to, it was a connector cable to an offshore wind farm. So something that was evidently green because like you could only import green electricity through this cable from a practical perspective. At the same time, the borrower of this node loan, Schulzheim-Darlene, was a big corporation, that transmission system operator, that didn't set up a, a specific SPV for this. So the question one could ask for is, because money is fungible, I mean, how, how did anyone make sure that the money for, that, that was raised to the Schulzheim would really find its way into, into the specific green project was meant for um and at the time people just said oh yeah we'll like write one line purpose and that's fine now i think we're really like kind of the journey has been has been moving to is that nowadays people think way more and that is really what also like to some extent the regulations are about how to make sure that you really can follow through where the money goes. And I remember I had like, about the same time, I was sitting on a panel in Berlin talking about green bonds. There I learned, for example, that a large automotive company was issuing a green bonds dedicated to its electrification activities. And that then, if, if you see that, it raises a lot of questions as to like, okay, does that really work? How do you relate that to the project? How do you structure accounts and reporting to make, really make sure that what has been promised to investors is actually happening? And I think that that's really where in the corporate world, people had to learn a lot, which was much easier and much simpler in, in proper project finance, where you work with an SPV and everybody has a very transparent or, or every project has a very transparent account structure. One of the debating points has been the absence of a universally accepted ESG standardized metrics and reporting framework, which many people consider that lead to difficulties in comparing and benchmarking products. Keeping this as a background, could you explain us briefly what ESG standardization means? I mean, I think you kind of already implied it in your question. The way ESG started, um, and as we also 
alluded to is like through private initiatives. Like in investors wanted to know what ha what's happening with the money. The market reacted by saying, okay, yeah, um, we can offer you certain investment opportunities that are green or fulfill a higher ESG standard than what the what the law requires. But effectively, at the start, there was, or for a long time, there was not regulated. So everybody could do essentially or market what they wanted. It's not that people were like trying to cheat directly, but you know, market is like you, you test the edges, so to say. You say you you look at like how much investors are willing to put up with buy require. So there was like private rating, ESG rating initiatives and all of that. And the result of that was that it was very difficult. The, the more the more the market expanded, the more difficult it became to understand what was really going on and what was in what product. So like, for example, the equator principles that I mentioned before, they were pretty easy because like project finance, after all, is a pretty small community. You have like, yeah, by now you have 100 banks and you essentially cover like the whole lending universe almost. And I think on the sponsor side for the big projects, you have another 100 or 200 and your, your universe is complete. If you go to really the capital market, it's it's a totally different game. Now, against that backdrop to standardize the requirements so that investors really, if they weren't as sophisticated as public finance banks, did have the, the possibility to have a proper sense of, um, of what was going on. And so standardization is both kind of within jurisdictions. You want a uniform standard, but of course it can also be on a more global scale where then it gets more difficult. And do you believe that the standardization could cause problems from a compliance perspective at the international level? Because, for example, the developing economies may have their own arguments in a proposal for ESG standardizations. I wouldn't necessarily call it a compliance issue because, um, as I said, for me, ESG, eventually it's all voluntary. It's just how you how you are allowed to present your project, not what you are allowed to do. Um, so with this, this being said, I would think that global standardization would be beneficial, but maybe it's not crucial. Maybe like investors and institutional investors are, are perfectly capable to operate with different standards in the US and in Europe, just as they are able to to operate with different accounting standards. So there's like it's it's not necessarily more complex, except for the bit that money, of course, is is typically easier to pin down than than a basket of of, of ESG criteria. But I I don't think that you have to have globally the same standards. I can imagine that emerging markets take a different view on whether that is really necessary. So there's like a famous quotes from a gentleman from the, who is the chief economist of the, um, of the World Bank or was now actually, I think he still is. And um, so in, in simplistic terms, it's a little bit develop first, clean up later. 
So there's like we can and and that is that can be a very fair perspective for countries that are really like still on a or in a situation where they where they focus more on while well, doing things within what the law allows them to do, but just getting things done. ESG for them may not be the highest on the um, on the agenda. But at the same time, I would say, well, doesn't mean that there won't be money for these other projects. It will just be priced differently. And I think that is perfectly fair because like investors who do prefer to only invest in like, ESG compliant or rated project, well, just have to have the right to decide what they do with their own money. So I don't think it's a real problem, but I can understand that there will be a bit of friction. I we add in on that, uh, Daniel, I think in, indeed, I think uh, your comparison also with how we assess uh, financial metrics, the accounting standards is also not something which happened overnight. It was a development over time. And I think I do see like certain benefits in having a harmonized standard in order to have comparability, uh, not just in the financial sector, but of course also in the sustainability sector. And at the moment, of course, there are certain frameworks which are developed. There are um, there's a push for more harmonization, which I think, if it happens, will make life for a lot of people a lot lot easier. As Danny also said, you attract a wider range of uh, funding opportunities. I think if you can show that you are ESG compliant and certain funds, if you want to access them, you will require a, a way to show that your um, project not in, in in itself is ESG compliant, but also in comparison to other projects in order to allocate funds in a very efficient manner. Daniel, another concern about implementation of the ESG criteria is a concept of greenwashing. Could you speak about it and how important is taxonomy in sustainable finance? Um, I think um, that really strongly relates back to our to our previous discussion. So when people became too adventurous in labeling projects as ESG compliant, the term that was invented to described this was really greenwashing. So you, you find some funny metric that would allow you to label a project as green, even though that really kind of must have felt misleading from an investor's perspective if the investor knew the, the whole story. So I think that that's, that's where the, the expression comes from. And I think what the, what the taxonomy essentially does is it sets a regulatory standard that says, okay, like if you want to call your your project as a green project, you have to adhere to the following standards. You have to follow the these or those metrics. I think that is something which the broader market. So, for example, the retail market for people who wouldn't want to invest their money in renewable energy projects has a strong interest in. And so I think for, for that purpose, it's certainly what is the focus of the of the debate now. Now, we have to be realistic because every taxonomy includes some things and kicks some things out where you can have different views whether they belong in or not. And 
us being here in Germany, as you are aware, there has been a huge debate in, in, in the context of the taxonomy where, for example, nuclear should qualify or not. And But that is a policy debate to be had. Um, and I think the important thing eventually is that there is enough transparency so you can look up the law, you have your advisor look up the law and tell you what compliance means and what it doesn't mean. And I think that that's fine and it, it is much better than the previous situation where everybody essentially set their own standards. I think it's a very interesting concept or a very good start and need to start to classify economic activities in order to actually have a benchmark where you can, it's not just set in stone, but of course where you can also develop from and which also allows you to, to develop your own standards as a financial institution on the one hand and on the other hand also to conduct a robust diligence in order to have it, to have a certain benchmark where you, which you can apply or compare the activities uh, in the end too. Andreas, could you also explain what are the reporting obligations of a company vis-a-vis ESG and could you explain the concept of double materiality? I think the, from my personal view, the exciting part about now measuring also not just commercial success and commercial impact of economic activity, but also actually taking into consideration the sustainable materiality of economic activities is something very fascinating and where we indeed, I think, at the beginning of, of a process. And the double materiality concept, in my point of view, exact, exactly addresses that, that you in order that you have activities and that you acknowledge which have a financial and sustainable component uh, to it. Both, in my point of view, can't be distinguished in the sense it's either financial or, so, uh, or sustainable. It's basically the same activity which has effects in either direction and we are also disregarding the sustainability factor would also mean you disregard the financial effects uh, from it. And do you know if there are any sanctions to the EU companies for non-compliance with ESG requirements? I think at the moment in particular when we look at loan products, there are no sanctions in the sense of that it's uh, like straight EODs in case you, you breach your sustainability goals which you contracted to. At the moment, when, when I think about sanctions, I think it's about access to debt markets, for example. It's about market exclusion. It's about more reputational risk at the moment. There are the documentations as such provide for uh, rather incentives. So, for example, marginal ratchets, which if you comply, for example, with the sustainable objective you have committed to. But the question is, if you really significantly do not meet those requirements, I think it's 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 more at the moment in the let's say soft soft sanctions that you get excluded from certain funds, as Daniel mentioned. That being if you stand up there and say I'm ESG compliant, and it turns out you're not, and the next product will be way more difficult to place uh, than the initial one. As we near the end of our podcast, and both of you you are experts in this field, what advice would you give to companies looking to improve their ESG performance? and enhance their sustainability efforts? That is actually less a question that relates to law, but a question as to like really how you set up your own internal processes. Because it's like, it's effectively like the, the legal aspect is kind of like the tip of the iceberg here. But the important thing is that within an organization, you have people consider these aspects, you 
factor them in to your internal decision-making processes, to your operations. And I think that is way more important than, say, looking at um, a specific legal aspect. And I think, and there's there's one recommendation I I would give, which is kind of not something that people intuitively like to hear. And that is, before you see any financial rewards from this, you do have to acknowledge that you will start with cost, because you, you will you will do things that go beyond what the law requires you to do. That will be part of your strategy. You will have a long-term goal. That long-term goal will hopefully also play out financially. But to begin with, it's a matter of saying, yes, that is something that we want. And we acknowledge that, that the financial rewards from that will come at a later point in time. And that along the way, th there will be certain costs. And I think it's, it's important to be honest with oneself on that journey rather than pretending that this is just a way to improve your quarterly financials as of next year. Adding to that, so it's making it very transparent that your economic activities do not just have a financial outcome, but have a wider effect on uh, on the community you're also in. Consider the ESG effects you have in your all-day business operations, tie-in processes, look at it from a sustainability point of view. How do your processes uh, evolve? Engage with your stakeholders. See what's important for them, the communities you're in, the investors you have, the employees you have. Engage with them as well. And then out of that, you need to produce a clear ESG strategy. The clearer it is, the better it is because the more you can benchmark it. And then I think the legal aspect, which can come to it, it's about strengthening governance and, and board oversight, where you basically put those elements also into your into your, your corporate governance and make it measurable. Thank you, Andreas and Daniel. And as a last question for this episode, we would like to know if there are any other steps that can be taken to further enhance ESG integration, first at the EU level and after the global one. Well, I think we first have to see how the new regulations play out. I do think that there will, as always, be kind of growing pains for the economy to get accustomed to what is now really the, the requirement. Because they, they, I mean, the, these are requirements. I mean, people have to, <laughs> have to invest in, in complying. And so I think one, one should also give businesses and the market that ominous animal some time to to adjust and to digest before going to the next step i mean we have the regulations that have now come into effect in a binding fashion as of first of january this year so let's see how this plays out what works what doesn't work so well whether the intended effects are are reached and then fine-tune from there. I can remember we had meetings back in the day also and around the time we, we advised on that structuring for the Green Schoenstein where the question was actually raised, you know, sustainable lending, is it, is it just a fashion or what, what can we do about it? And in the end, I think our view already there was very clear that this is not just a trend which comes and vanishes, but it's that ESG integration is something we can expect to to grow. We are at the beginning of a journey, in my point of view, a very exciting journey. And I think market participants, companies, financial institutions 
the need to embrace and prioritize uh, the ECG con considerations and consider them if they want to have long-term success. I think ESG integration that's going to become an essential aspect of corporate strategy, same as financial planning is nowadays. And I think it's a very exciting development to see where it's going to lead us in the end. Thank you, Daniele Andreas, for this informative session, and thank you, Renato. Thank you, Jan, and wonderful to be on this podcast. Thank you, Andrea, Daniel, Irato, Sean, and Ruslana for this informative session. The next episodes of the podcast will focus on fintech, banking and innovation, IPOs, and more. Please ensure that you do not miss any of these and subscribe to the Dealmakers ILF podcast series.